Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Elaine Chacon Brown. It is February 26, 2018. We're at Linfield College in Nicholson Library. And Elaine will start you off by asking you why wine? Well, I love wine. I think that's always the main, that's always the main reason. But I used to be a philosophy professor, and there's a kind of seriousness and thoroughness that comes with doing that sort of work. And it, that wasn't just going to go away because I left that profession. And wine gives me the opportunity to kind of use that formal, former training in a different sort of way, you know, with a different angle, and then also to kind of lighten it up, you know, because the thing is, at the end of the day, wine is still a beverage, and um, and it's about pleasure, and it's about people, and so it kind of gives me the chance to use my training and be serious and study and learn a lot of different subjects via the vector of wine, but kind of keep it light at the same time. So I like that combo. So what led you to go from philosophy to writing about wine? <laughs> it's sort of a wandering accident. Um, yeah, I realized it was time to get out of academia. It's just a really difficult time to be an academic in the States. and. <clears throat> Um, didn't know what I was going to do instead, actually. But I decided to give myself a year to get out gracefully and just assumed by the end of the year I'd have my alternate career set up. But when the year ended, I, I realized I had no idea what I was going to do. We were living in Flagstaff, Arizona at the time, and I wanted my daughter to be able to finish her school year. And so I had half a year to kind of hang out. And I had actually started working part-time at the local wine shop wine bar in the meantime, kind of towards the end of my last semester. And at the same time, also drawing illustrated tasting notes that the managing partner would use to advertise like the new glass pour of the week or a new bottle or just feature something. And it actually, the idea of illustrated tasting notes hadn't been done before. And so when he started putting those online, within a couple of weeks they went viral, and just you know because it was a new way to communicate about mm-hmm. wine. And so I had actually started doing those while I was still finishing my academic career, but I, at the time I didn't realize that could possibly turn into a new career. Mm-hmm. So once I finished my teaching contract and um, was shifting into kind of you know doing other things. I started getting invitations for um, wine trips and tastings and samples to review and things like that. I had expanded the illustrated work into also writing work, mm-hmm. all via an online website. And so I just I started getting invitations and started building. And by the end of my daughter's school year, I had to kind of make a decision. What was I going to do next? That had been my timeline. And I decided to take a risk and see what I could make happen with wine. So that's how I got started. And so how was the transition as you were getting started, as you were decided, as you kind of dove in full time, how was, what was that like? Well, it's really, I mean, the truth is it's been really hard, you know. It's because, um, <clears throat> you know, I was already 
I was already in love with wine, and so I had studied it in, um, as a very serious hobby for mm -hmm. a while at that point. Um, but even so, there's always still more to learn and understand when it comes to wine. But that was actually the easiest part. It was learning the whole industry and the market and how, you know, who all these people are and how, how they interact and how it works differently here versus there and kind of building that side of the knowledge was, was um, hard, the hardest part actually. And then, because the, the learning about wine part, I knew how to do that. I, that was essentially what my previous career was, what, you know, was pick something, research it, be really thorough, figure out where you're missing something, fill that in, just keep doing that over and over. So I just sort of took that previous training and applied it to wine, except did it um, with people in person. So I just traveled around doing full, you know, for the first three years, I worked six days a week, um, you know, 10 to 12 hour days almost every, time, every day, just doing one-on-one -on -one visits with producers <laughs> to learn, um, you know, to taste, barrel taste, vintage verticals, walk the vineyards, talk about the winemaking, why this variety here, you know, be just being really serious and thorough. And for most of that time I was being, I wasn't being paid to, it was all, I kind of treated it almost like going to grad school again, <laughs> you know, um, like, okay, this is my three years of coursework where you just work nonstop all the time. And then I have to write my thesis after that, you know? <laughs> so um, somewhere in the midst of that though, um, magazines started asking if I would write for them. And so that the writing side started building professionally. And then at some point someone realized, wait a minute, she used to be a professor that she could probably lead a seminar. We should ask her. And then that went well. And then somebody asked me to do another one and that went well. And that, that just kept building. So now what I do is pretty even mix of writing and seminars, but <clears throat> all from this traveling around. I still am pretty serious, spend most of my time traveling around doing one-on-one -on -one meetings with people. It's an interesting way to learn it. What was the reception you got as you started doing that, uh, especially in the kind of the early days as you weren't really a known name yet? What kind of reception did you get from the industry? People were so open. I, they, um, <clears throat> it was interesting and really unexpected for me. I had no idea that um, I would be so invited mm -hmm. in, you know? But the illustrated tasting notes, they were such a new way of doing things that people were excited about that. And then the other piece of it was my, um, I think because I wasn't embedded in the industry and I hadn't been trained up in the industry, the way I looked at wine and talked about it had a bit of a different tone. There were sort of, I didn't have the same rules mm -hmm. to take as a habit, you know? And so um, some people, they found it a little irreverent and, and that, that was refreshing mm -hmm. for them. But then also I think too, because of my academic background, I was really serious and thorough and tried to be accurate um, and really wanted to understand rather than just rushing through to you know, mention a bottle of wine or something. Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand the context. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that first summer especially, I did five months on the road, the whole West Coast um, just doing intensive interviews that whole time. And um, so mainly Oregon and California. And 
people would just find out I was on my way somewhere, and I'd start getting all these messages asking if I had time to meet with them. So there was a real, um, people were really generous in that sense. And then also, um, part of what gave me the courage to take the risk was IPNC asked me to be a media guest that first year. And I just like couldn't even believe that somebody would offer that to someone like me who wasn't from a magazine at that point at all. So there were things like that. Um, you know, again, people just including me. Um, and it's just kept building from there. So have you developed kind of a writing philosophy along the way? Do you have a, we consider a writing philosophy? Um, hmm. I think, I mean, I, well, I guess, again, that seriousness. I take that, I feel like I, I, for me, I'm sort of a quirky one, I think, in that, like, for me, taking something really seriously and through that work, discovering something unexpected, that is so much fun for me. You know, so that's where the serious joy combo <laughs> comes in, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I really love that approach. And I think with writing, with research, and then with seminars or speaking, um, I'm always kind of bringing that combination in. It's like, oh my god, look how fun this is. Isn't this cool? Um, just, but what's, what I think is cool is like, Oh my God! We just like came, found something new together. You know how awesome is that? You know, and so it just brings another layer to the wine. You know, so you're still just at the end of the day, you still have to ask, do I like this wine? Do I want to drink this wine? But there's a kind of discovery you can bring to it along the way too. <clears throat> what are the biggest challenges you found in writing about wine, and how have you worked to overcome them? Well, definitely the the pay. Oh man, you know, like until recently, like I was covering expenses and that was it. So I, you know, didn't buy new clothes for several years and, um, you know, just kind of made sure my daughter and I had our rent and our food and that was the extent of it, you know. So, yeah, it's, there's, in the world, there's very few fully paid, devoted wine columns anymore. And, um, you know, that, that, offer a salary and expenses. You know, there's really kind of just three in the United States at this point. So anyone besides those three people was kind of scrapping it together. And, um, you know, there's a lot of pl if, people that want to break into wine writing. There's tons of opportunities to do it for free or to do it for $25 or something like that. Um, and that's not going to pay the bills, obviously. You know, the big thing in my mind, though, the big lesson, and I think this comes out of being an academic for me, too. Like, as an academic, you're given, you know, some pay structure, you know. So as a grad student, maybe you get a stipend. Then as a professor, you have your salary. Um, and there's a sense in which, on paper, that just covers your teaching contract, your, you know. But then at the same time, to keep your teaching contract, you're obligated to keep doing research, create new classes, review other people's books, create your own books, write papers, present. You know, So there's a way in which you have a salary that, officially speaking, only covers a small portion of work. But you don't get to keep doing that portion of work unless you do this enormous other portion of work. And so, um, <clears throat> so that sort of 
you know, and I come from that way of thinking, and so I'm really used to that idea of the work you do isn't about the pay you get. The work you do is about asking first, is this right for me? Do I want to do it? Do I have something I can contribute? And then saying, okay, awesome, let's do, let's make this awesome, you know? Like, so, you know, I kind of got through those first years of barely or not being paid by saying, okay, every single thing I have the chance to do is an opportunity for excellence. That's the question. So, you know, so there were, there were a few times where I took like a $25 column and instead of doing $25 worth of work, I was like, okay, let's make this as awesome as possible. And I think, <clears throat> I think that's the big trick is if you treat every job as an opportunity for excellence, you're telling the world, this is the level of work I do. And that's what builds into other work, you know, because no one reading a, a wine writing column knows what that person's being paid. Sure. So if you do $25 worth of work, all they're going to know is your work's not very good or interesting. <laughs> You know, but if you if you do really great work, they're going to see that, and they're going to take that away, and then that's going to lead to other people being like, "Oh man, remember that thing I read? That was cool. We should see if she can whatever." You know, so <clears throat> that was sort of the mindset I took to it. Um, you know, the, you have to be paid. I also think the other side is gaining the confidence to know what your work is worth, and. And um, that's really hard too, like being willing to be like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do this for free, or no, I'm sorry, I can't do this for a little bit of pay. There's a kind of toss up there where you have to, early on, you have to be willing to build your reputation, which means doing a lot of unpaid stuff. And, it, um, and then once you've gotten a strong enough knowledge base and a strong enough connection base and strong enough reputation, then you have to be willing to say I'm you know, well, you know this is what my work costs and and at the same time for me it's it's super important to you know pay it forward and pay it back and um, there's a like I was saying there's a lot of people that really encouraged me and supported my career early on and if they need something and I'm able to help then I'm going to you know sure. Sure. yeah so it's I, yeah so it, I, I'm saying it's a quirky thing because it's not about money and at the same time you have to Make a living, sure. you know. So when you're when you're writing a story, what do you look to write about? What what draws you to a particular person or brand or wine or story? Um, I'm really interested in people that are sincere about what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of writers and wine experts that specialize in a type of wine or a region. And there's a sense in which I have some of that. But mo most of all, what I'm compelled by is people that are really sincere about what they're doing. And, and, um, and at the same time, like really seeking excellence, like I was talking about. I think by now I've realized that's, I find that really interesting, you know, that people that are so committed and really, you know, they're totally grabbed by what they do. And they, you know, they kind of, so I'm, I think I'm probably compelled by people that I f see that similar level of commitment in. Mm -hmm. And how, how they approach <clears throat> things varies and what they're doing varies. And 
for me, it's really important to taste broadly and to meet with a huge range of um, producer types and you know stylistic types and things like that. Um, so it's yeah, for me, it's not about the wine type or the place exactly. That, I mean, in terms of deciding what to write about, um, it's really about like looking for those people that I think are doing something. Um, because they're really committed and they really mean it. You know, they're doing it out of love for what they're doing. You know, that said, I end up, you know, I end up spending a lot of time on Pinot. I spend a lot of time in Willamette Valley, all over California, um, all over New Zealand. Um, I've ended up spending a lot of time in Chardonnay, I think, because for a long time there weren't people willing to take Chardonnay seriously. And I was like, you're crazy, there's so much good Chardonnay. And, there's really bad Chardonnay too, but um, but there were you know so that was an interesting story for me finding people in the midst of this time period where Chardonnay was really not taken seriously. There were still people that were like so serious about it and really loved it and really saw what was special in the place they could grow it and then the way they wanted to make it. And that combination was was really fascinating to me. So I ended up spending a lot of time kind of following those producers around. And then people started getting curious about Chardonnay again, so suddenly people were asking me to do seminars on it. You know, so there's things like that where I think stylistic and, um, and regional and varietal themes have emerged. But most of all, it's that commitment people bring to their work that compels me. Do you find yourself drawn to b bigger <coughs> operations, smaller operations? Hole in the wall, underdog stories. Do you find a particular type of uh, entrepreneur or type of uh, brand that, that draws you in? I think I've, because I really want to, I don't want to waste people's time. So, um, so I'm always also asking what can I contribute. And so I think because of that, I've ended up spending more time with kind of medium to smaller producers. You know, the big guys don't need someone like me. Um, and, and the truth is there's a lot of little guys that don't either, you know. So I'm, I think, I, am, I, think I, am, I do tend to be drawn to the underdog to some extent. Um, but I think it's not so much that I'm trying to root for the underdog as I'm always looking for where something interesting is happening that might not be so readily seen. But I can, you know, I'm like, oh, wait, what's that? What's that? Why hasn't that? Why haven't I heard about that before? You know, and so I'll be drawn to those, um, those stories that, you know, are lesser told, or, or, or stories. Some stories they've been told over and over again, but I've spotted something that hasn't been told yet in it, you know. Absolutely, sure. So is there, a, is there a particular part of the, the kind of winemaking process from, from grape to, to bottle that interests you the most that you find writing about more in the process, like cultivating fruit or making wine, tasting it, selling it? Is there a part that you find the most interesting or captivating? Huh. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I think something I've noticed that the you know wine media talks about the winemaker a lot 
and talks about, did you add yeast or not? Did you use whole cluster or not? Um, you know, how, you know, and then more recently they've started being like, how often are you doing punch downs? You know, but, and asking those questions as if they're definitive insights into the wine or the ethos of the wine. But I, it's so clear that the vineyard and how the winemaker interacts with the vineyard and then how the farming is handled and then where it's grown, like those are really the crucial questions. Um, especially if you're looking for a wine of transparency, well, what's it transparent to? You need to understand that place. But also the fruit quality from the farming has to be there to reduce other inputs so the wine can be transparent. So for me, there's, um, <clears throat> I think I'm probably most compelled actually by those early stages of like trying to understand the unique growing conditions of an overall region and then how they get focused in the specific vineyard and investigating to what extent the people working with the site or buying the fruit are um, paying attention to that and what adjustments they're making and how that's, um, how that shifts what they do in the cellar. You know, so if you if you have a really wind-exposed site that creates thicker skins, okay, does that change the way you're doing extraction in the cellar? Some people it doesn't. Some people it does. You know, so that relationship I find compelling. I think the I think wine media hasn't spent as much time on vineyard questions because it's harder to understand. You know, um, so as much time as I can get actually walking in the vineyards and talking through that aspect of things, the better. Um, and I've been working on kind of upping my game in terms of my ability to communicate that in seminars and then also in writing. You know, because I, I can't just like go straight to the end there, right? Like one thing, I don't do the farming, so I shouldn't pretend to be an expert at it. But the other thing is we all kind of have to get there together in terms of readiness for that public discourse on wine being about the vineyard. <clears throat> you know, so I try and kind of slowly increase it, but in a way that's still approachable for the reader or the audience. Sure. You know. Sure. Do you think that will do you think that will be more of the future of wine writing? Do you think that, that will be there'll be more of a focus <clears throat> on the earlier stages of the process? Or do you think that the, the winemaker will kind of continue to be the king? Well the trouble, like I've said earlier, is people don't get paid much to write. You know, so, um, in, like, I, honestly, the way that I travel, um, the amount of time I put into meeting with producers, like, I, I don't know other people that do that. Mm -hmm. I know I, there's a lot of people doing great work, but in different ways, you know. So I know wine writers who do travel as much as I do, um, but with shorter vineyard visits because they're trying to taste as many wines as they can. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of go the other way where, I, well, I, I mean, I definitely am trying to taste as many wines as I can, but I'll sacrifice that for the sake of identifying there's something really interesting with this wine. Can you, can I get a whole day just in that vineyard with those producers, you know? Um, and I don't know other writers that do that. And the truth is I wouldn't recommend other people do that. Just for the simple logistical reality that no one can afford to. So, um, so no, I guess I'd be, there's a funny tension there that I think that's the next step, you know, bringing 
wine understanding more into the vineyard. And at the same time, it's hard for me to imagine how it'll happen because I don't know anyone that can afford to do that, you know? Sure, sure. So. <clears throat> so you mentioned earlier some of, the, some of the regions you have spent a lot of time in, California, Oregon, New Zealand. Have you found a, a favorite region or, or a favorite place, place to do your research? Well, I spent a ton of time in Willamette. And um, the other piece is always the people. You know, so a lot of why I come here so much is the people. Um, I'm from Alaska originally, and, uh, and I grew up commercial fishing for salmon. And so I think that part of why wine works for me too is because you know, I grew up in a harvest industry. And so <clears throat> the people that actually do the work to grow and make the wine, there's something about that I recognize, I understand it, because I had to do that same kind of thing before. Um, and, um, you know, versus someone that <clears throat> is on the sales side of the wine industry and they're always in the city, they have a different, very different way of engaging with people and very different rhythm. And it's obviously crucial that they do that work, you know, because we want this all to continue, so you got to sell the wine. Um, but the people I feel like I really relate to and understand are on the production side, the winemaking and the wine growing. Um, and. But then there's this other kind of cultural piece to it. You know, if you grow up that way, especially in Alaska, there's a sort of straightforwardness, I think. You know, there's not time to um, just focus on niceties because you got to get your work done. <laughs> and so um, there's something about Willamette that feels a little like that. Like people here are inordinately nice. They're super nice people in Willamette, but in this very straightforward sort of way. And so I just feel pretty comfortable in that sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, w I don't think I would claim any of those regions as more or less interesting. Um, it just depends on what you want to learn and focus on. And, um, but, but yeah, you know, the other pieces, like I said, IPNC asked me really early on if I'd be a media guest. And that was kind of what made me brave enough to take the risk to go ahead and go into wine. So there's, there's a bit of a you know, appreciation and loyalty piece happening for me there with Willamette too, because of that. Have you noticed any <clears throat> major differences uh, and, and also similarities between the various regions you've spent a lot of time in? Is there, are there some things that are the same across all of them and some things that are noticeably different? Well, I think of those three we're talking about, California is the most different. Um, but, I mean, it's, a, that's not, I don't know, I, the three, like, so Willamette Valley, California, which is huge, uh, and then New Zealand, which is also quite big. Like, they're, they're very distinct. There are definitely through lines and parallels. One of the things, though, um, New Zealand, southern, South Island, New Zealand, and then Willamette, you know, actually are at similar latitudes. So Central Otago and then Willamette Valley are both 45th parallel, but north and south. And so you end up with um, you know, similar light level um, changes over the course of the growing season and you know, duration of the day, angle of the sun. And then, you know, so then as you go towards harvest, the vines are gonna be done when they're done because the angle of the sun has changed, the length of the day has changed, and the vines are just like, oh, the earth is telling us it's the end of the season. <laughs> Whereas in a place like California, 
that change is there too, but it's less dramatic. And so I think it's easier to extend the season in a different kind of way. Um, you know, but then, so that's a big difference. Um, and there are cooler climate regions in each of those three places, but what it, we mean by cool climate is very different in each of those places too. You know, so, um, yeah, so for me that's fascinating, you know. So <clears throat> a lot of my early, a lot of my early research was, um, like I said, in, here in Willamette, but then also kind of coastal areas of California. And I learned those pretty thoroughly. And then going to New Zealand and seeing there are really important differences in how things work and grow there because it is the southern hemisphere, you know, and I, I find that fascinating. But then when I, digging into that and learning that actually then reshifts how I think about this and like gives me, kind of refreshes my interest in here too, you know, because I'll kind of deepen my understanding of things like growing conditions and then come back and be like, okay, well, yeah, 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 that, no, that works a little different, you know, it'll just kind of keeps bumping down the levels. Yeah. What about the public perception toward wine in, the, in those three different regions? What do you notice uh, different, different from the public perspective, how they view the wine industry uh, in those three spots? Um, well, so in Oregon, a lot of the producers are just selling in Oregon, you know. In New Zealand, the you know, the local population is something like 4.5 million in the entire country. That's not enough people to support all of the wine producers there, you know. So they have to sell internationally. They don't, not just out of their, their you know, province, mm -hmm. but actually internationally. And then California is sort of a mix of those two things, um, you know, because the United States is quite large. So California can... There's a lot of people that just sell direct to consumer, but then there's people that distribute all over the US or only key markets, but notice still out of California. And then there's a few that do international. So I think um, kind of the levels of market you have to involve yourself in, local to regional to national to international, really changes how you think about wine. So there are, there are producers in Oregon that are really internationally minded, but I think the concentration's lower. In New Zealand, producers have to be internationally minded. They're not gonna survive otherwise. So, you know, and, and like I said, California's a real mix, so, but, but immediately that just, just that one thing, who's your market, um, changes what you're thinking wine is, changes what wines you're tasting, um, you know, if you're having to do a lot of international sales trips, dinner at the end of the night, you, you know, might be a wine from that place you're in. It might be your own wine, but it might be, you know, it's more likely you're going to be tasting wines from all over if you're having to travel all over to do sales. So it changes what you're thinking about and, and what you think wine looks like. What do you see as um, <clears throat> obstacles either now or coming up in the future for the wine industry? What do you see as the big challenges coming up? Um, well, in Oregon, the price of land is really going up quickly. Um, but at the same time, relatively speaking, the price of land is far lower than other highly regarded 
wine industries. So I think for Oregon, that's we're in the middle of a really big change. Um, and I don't think anybody knows yet what that change is going to result in later. But I think, um, <clears throat> I think that's the challenge for Oregon. People are, locals are getting pushed out because they can't afford to own land. And we're actually at a point now where um, just in the last few years, new producers can't afford to have their own vineyard. You know, so, so we're at, but that, at the same time, that's, an, that's a kind of a standard stage for any wine region that's grown up enough. You hit a point where you have more producers sourcing fruit than producers owning and farming their own land. And or, I think Oregon's in the middle of that shift. So there's a funny trick there where it's kind of a compliment to how well Oregon's done. But it means growing pains and, and um, difficulties for people here, you know. Um, land prices, increasing wine cost is a common problem in a lot of places. Um, it's hard for Oregon and California to export wine to international markets because the wine cost has to be above a certain level because of the farming costs, the property taxes, the land costs, you know. So, um, so that, that immediately creates a limit on how how far the industry can go in terms of exports, but also even for you know local buyers, you know. Sure. So prices going up um, can mean number of producers going down and increase of big volume producers too, you know, because they're the only ones that can afford it. So, so you mentioned or Oregon specifically there. Um, curious if you have any other just sort of general thoughts or. Um, things you've noticed about the Oregon wine industry since you've started following it and maybe what you see coming down the road in the next 10, 20 years? Well, there's definitely been a big increase in California owners just in the last five years. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, there, are, there have always been some. Um, you know, the founders came from California um, and, you know, the first, uh, you know, woman to be hired for an official winemaker position, right? So there's been women winemakers here from the very beginning. The founders, you know, were couples working together. But then Lynn Penner-Ash comes in as the first woman to be hired for just a winemaking position, not as an owner. She comes from California, right? So, so there's always been people from California here. Um, but and then you know for a long time there's been one or two people from France and but that has been steadily increasing and and especially again in the last five years there's been a big boom of people buying people from France buying here and then people from California buying here so that's the biggest change um, there's sort of an in just five years there's been a massive increase of outside interest in actual ownership in Oregon. And, you know, I suspect that will continue. Um, and again, the more that happens, the more land prices will go up and the harder it is for locals to own their own land. So there's a big generational shift happening right now, too, because people, a lot of the founders, you know, are at a point where either their kids need to step in or they need to sell. And so there's a lot, of, that's part of why there's so much sales. Um, of land going on right now too, you know. So do you think that means the industry will 
will it continue to grow at the rate it's been growing? Will you see a, a, a shrinking number of actual wineries as they get bought up? What do you think it looks like in a decade? Um, it's hard to say, but I mean, I know in, in California, which might be a parallel in a sense, um, it's not that the number of actual wineries has gone down, it's that you have this funny um, mix of like a few wineries that own a lot of brands. So that looks like a bunch of different wineries, you know, mm -hmm. if you're just looking at bottles. And then at the other end, there's um, a lot of really tiny um, brands, you know, really tiny production. Um, you know, but people, you know, maybe they have a winemaking job for someone else and they just really, really want to be able to make the kind of wine they want to make. And so they have, you know, 500 cases or less wine label. And I suspect that will probably increase more in Oregon. Um, I mean, it's been happening already just in the last few years. There's a bunch of people, you know, they basically, they have a full-time job and then on the side they make just a few hundred cases, but they sell that wine. And, um, you know, it's for some of those that will build into being their full-time job and they'll have a robust wine label and a lot of them, it won't get bigger, you know, so. So does Oregon remind you of another region that you've been to in this stage of its development? Or just does it remind you of another wine region in general? Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, well, so this might seem like a silly answer, but I'm not sure if I think of wine regions in relation to each other in that way, okay. you know, so. Um, there are definitely are moments where, you know, so like driving around both islands in New Zealand, there are like suddenly I'll come into an area and be like, whoa, this looks just like Blamit. You know, there'll be moments like that. Um, you know, or like I said, um, trying to make sense of where Oregon's at now and what do these changes happening now mean for it in the future, then, you know, I'll think, oh, well, you know, this is a similar stage to this part of California however many years ago. You know, so I'll make, I'll kind of try to make sense of things. I'll make comparisons like that. But I don't think that the region as a whole reminds me of another region as a whole. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. What do you think about the sort of the future of the wine industry in general? Uh, what does it, is it, it's, it's kind of booming right now. What does it look like? Is it going to continue? Well, no, it seems like it has to start slowing down and, and maybe even has been slowing down in a sense already. Um, there are so many individual little projects all over the world, and so many of them are being distributed in multiple parts of the world. Um, you know, it's, so there's, there's a couple things there. So, you know, it's something like wine writing or, or even um, wine distribution there's more and more specialization that's happened as a result. So that part's great. Um, but then at the same time, it means no one can keep up, you know. So it feels like there's kind of opposite directions happening there where there is more opportunity to get those little tiny, you know, oddball varieties, tiny little producers. There's more opportunity in a certain sense to get those out because there are more people willing to specialize. 
you know, and just import a very niche sort of um, wine type. Um, and at the same time, it's a lot of people, a lot of producers in a lot of parts of the world, it's actually because it, of the increase in that sort of thing, it's actually even harder for them to distinguish themselves and be the one that that importer wants, you know, and then, but, but again, it always comes down to can you sell your wine not just because of your story and where you come from and what you make, but also can you afford to sell it at that price to get into those international markets? You know, so that's motivated a lot of the movement away from importing into the US and to some extent into the UK. And so there's a lot more going to Asia now. You know, so that's just that one thing. That's a massive change in the international um, wine industry. And I think very few people really understand how the various markets in Asia work and, and how to import there. And, you know, and then there's also um, education and interest is always shifting in different markets there too. So those are big changes I think very few of us understand the implications of. So I'm curious, you talked a little bit about this earlier, um, but if you uh, were giving someone advice for doing what you do, what, what, what advice would you give them? They have to really mean it, you know? It's like, it's a lot of work and it's really hard and, uh, you know, this, the rest of my week, this week, it's, I have a series of 14 to 16 hour days every day until um, I leave the area and then I have, you know, so for, I'm here for just over two weeks and it's all days like that and then I go home and I'm there for two nights, and I leave for Spain for a little over a week, and then straight to Germany for a little over a week, and then I'm back, and then I have to taste about 100 wines within a couple days to decide and select a certain number for a seminar, you know. And so anyway, my you can see it's like, <laughs> you know. Um, and so there are days I wake up and I'm just like, oh my god, okay, how why am I doing that, you know. I have to kind of like reboot and remind myself why I'm doing this and I just, you just, you can't do it unless you mean it, you know? And because the thing is at the end of the day, if I'm in that one of the, you know, if I wake up exhausted, um, one, I need to be taking care of my physical needs, so I got to figure that out. But then by midday, I'm going to be like, oh my God, that's so cool. We, seriously, that is what happens here? You know, so it, that's the reboot. Like mm -hmm. the work itself is the reboot, mm -hmm. you know? And if you don't have that love for it, you're just never going to get through it, you know? Um, and the, but then the big thing too, it's like if you're trying to make it as a wine writer, you know, I can work as a wine writer because I also do seminars and speak, you know? So you, that's the thing. If you're trying to make it as a wine writer, figure out what else you can contribute, you know? That could, you know, what other service can you give that can be a source of income? Um, but, but also, um, you know, the, again, like if you're gonna stick, it's got to be because you're doing, like, you're really showing you committed and you mean it, you know, like, and um, it's, you know, it's not about you, even though, but you have to want to do it. Um, what can you, I think that's the most important thing to, to keeping the motivation to do it, to 
standing out in a way that makes people want to keep you around. You know, to um, doing the kind of work that makes people hope that you're the one that will write about them, so they tell you about stuff before other people know, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. What's common in all those things? You've got to mean what you're doing. You've got to be so committed that you're making sure you're making a living, but you're also not doing it for the money. So you're doing it to serve, to contribute, to, to show excellence. Like, for me and what I do, that combination, that's what gets me up even though I'm tired, gets me on the next plane even if I'm stiff, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, I think what has made people want me to keep writing or speaking about wine. You mentioned earlier that when you got invited to the, the IPNC, that was kind of a kind of an aha moment for you. Was there a were there any other moments along the way where you felt like you could do this? Like you like was there a time when you realized like this could be what you do for a living? Well, that was a big one. That was a big one. It's fine. I mean, which is hilarious because it wasn't in any way a paid gig, but it was just that the idea that they even that they perceived me as that. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> whoa, I can, I'm getting to do that this early? Like that, whoa, okay. If I keep working hard, then maybe that can increase, you know? So that was a really big moment. Um, the funny thing, too, is like the, a lot of those aha moments, again, haven't had anything to do with, um, with making a living for me. So there was, again, that early summer <laughs> first summer. It's like ridiculous that I'm doing what I'm doing at all and that I got to this point. Because I like quit a good job just because it wasn't quite right for me. You know, I could have easily kept doing it. And drew my retirement, nowhere near retirement age. And I was like, okay, I'm going to live off my retirement. Um, except in a field that's known to be challenging to make a living you know, with no guarantee or connection or even a chance of a job. Like, I, I wasn't even looking to work for magazines when I did this. Um, and so, and, but I just felt, like, compelled. Like, any time I'd ask myself, what am I doing? Why should I, you know, should I quit? I, like, it was like my gut. I would just hear this utterly clear moment of just keep doing what you're doing. And, and no explanation why, no guarantee, no reasoning, just very clear every single time there would be just keep doing what you're doing. And I'd have to kind of reboot and just trust that, you know? Because again, I left a job that was, it was a good job. And so immediately my standard was high. I wasn't going to take some job that wasn't very good because I could have just stayed in, as an academic. Um, so a lot of the other aha moments were be things like um, really early on I drew a wine illustration, a tasting note of uh, wine made by Grobner in Italy. Because I was trying to, you know, everybody was talking about orange wines and skin contact, white wine maceration, and, and, and I really wanted to understand it. And a lot of, it was such a polarizing style that a lot of people were just fully against it or just fully for it, and I was like, Bang. <laughs> it can't be that it's only ever good or only ever not good. So I basically hunted as many macerated white wines as I could from all over the world and uh, learned everything I could about them and then hosted a big tasting for friends um, 
of a lot of these different wines. But I did illustrate tasting notes for them as well. So one of these wines was Grobner, who's sort of considered the godfather of all of this. And um, months later, I was uh, in the middle of that first summer. I was like two and a half months into this whole like six days a week, 12 hours a day kind of approach I was doing. And I woke up, I was super tired. It was my day off, I was super tired and feeling despair because of my fatigue. And then I got online to check my email and someone had sent me a link. Robner had shared my illustration and talked about it was moving for him. And I was like, holy crap, <laughs> you know? Like this, he's one of the most influential winemakers in Italy. And I had done this little thing about his wine and it was moving for him. And um, that was just mind blowing for me, you know? Um, and it was just this realization, wow, we can all do that for each other, you know? Like, the, he's a great example of somebody that, whether you are interested in his style of wine or not, you have to admit that he's totally sincere about what he's doing, you know? And that sincerity has had a huge impact on, on Italy, um, and especially his region of Italy. You know, he's gone through multiple stages of style and every stage that he's gone through has transformed how wine is made in, in his region. And um, so that, just that, that's a remarkable life, you know, whether you like the wine or not. And um, so to find out that something that for me is just part of what I do would have an, even a small impact on him is, that's remarkable. And so I, I, it was, there were a lot of little moments like that where I would, you know, I tend to head down, keep doing my work, take it very seriously. And so to every once in a while kind of look up and have someone come to me and say, I want you to know what you did, like changed, whatever. Sure. That's really, I think, what keeps me doing it. Um, and again, not because it's about me, but because there's those inner, like, I just think that's, <laughs> you know, to be an existentialist, like, that's what human life is about. It just happens that, you know, some of us get to do it in wine. But the more I can share in that kind of, like, taking what we do seriously, being really committed, and then mutually inspiring and mutually contributing, the more I can do that, whatever it is I'm doing, that's, that's the fulfilling life for me. Um, and. So it's, it was, yeah, early on it was like suddenly realizing, oh my god, I'm doing that through what I do, you know? Um, that was really what, those were the aha moments for me, yeah. That's really awesome. <laughs> um, uh, last question for you. Uh, do you have any, do you have any plans for future projects or future changes to your format? Or you just kind of, like you say, head down and, and keep going? Well, I kind of, I. I give myself sort of yearly projects that kind of give an umbrella to all the different little projects within it. So um, it's sort of a professionalizing myself in a sense. So two years ago, I um, decided I was going to write as much as I possibly could that year um, and kind of see how that went and learn what I could from that. Um, when you have to get a lot of writing done, there's multiple things that happen. You learn how to do it quickly, but then I'm still determined to maintain the quality standard, right? So 
so the quickly part has to happen in here too. You know, I think um, because of the approach I take, sometimes I can kind of dwell in giving myself time to sort it out. Well, if you have a ton of writing to get done and you're still doing this travel schedule, you have to figure out how to like, you know, and then nail it out, you know. So I wanted to kind of push that as far as I possibly could. And that way I would have to really dial in, you know, my techniques and skills as a writer, but also learn what do I want to do? How much do I want to write? How much is it right for me to write? Um, and what kinds of pieces is it right for me to write? So two years ago I did that. And then last year I was like, OK, so I've, now I've got that. What do I want to do this year? So last year I decided I would travel as much as I could. And, and so I was only home 10 weeks of 2017. And I would, uh, you know, I'd get back from some 10-day intensive. I'd land, switch out my bag, and leave the next morning kind of thing over and over and over again. Um, but the thing about it was that by, so the year before when I was doing all the writing, I was traveling a lot, though not as much as last year. And um, I was so exhausted by the end of the year. So it's sort of a weird choice, right, to be like, OK, let's increase the you know, travel. But I, it was a similar goal of um, I'm going to travel as much as I can because then I'm going to know exactly how to do it. And once I'm done, I can ask how much do I want to travel. So the crazy thing was that by the time I got home at the end of the year in mid-December, I was less tired than I had been at the start of August. Like I had figured that out. Um, and um, then this year, the what am I going to do for, over the course of the year is this year I'm decided I'm going to be involved in as many book projects as I can. So I'm not saying I'm writing a book. I'm saying I want to know what that looks like. You know, so um, a couple weeks ago, I turned in um, what's essentially like content that's the equivalent of half of a book. You know, there's a group doing a big guide, and they asked me to if I would write it. And I was like, no, I'll do the parts that I know I know really well, and I'll help you figure out who to do for the other parts. And so I got to help connect different writers I know to pieces of this project, and I did what's about half. So I turned that in, and then someone asked me to write the foreword for a book she's doing, and um, I'm the consultant for a book someone else is doing. So I'm, I'm doing projects like that this year. Um, and so every time I do something like that, it shifts my approach in various ways. It just kind of dials things in more, and it kind of um, you know, changes the specialization a little bit. You know, so last year, traveling so much, I traveled to a lot of very different places, but I also, certain places I traveled to over and over again. So I was in Oregon a ton, and I was in New Zealand a ton. And immediately, just the fact that I've spent so much time in those places has has led to, now I'm doing, a lot of people have asked me to do seminars on Willamette Valley and seminars on New Zealand. So that just kind of naturally changes what I do over time. Um, yeah. Kind of makes you an, an expert on the region. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, you know, so it's like the way I do my work shifts or more organically as an effect of that. Too. Well, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to mention at the end here? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, no, I'm happy to answer anything else, but um, no, I think it's good. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Really, we really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.